Welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series in the life of Jacob with James Jordan. And here, Jordan's going to be in Genesis chapter 42, covering the first 18 verses or so. This is where Jacob sends his sons to Egypt for grain, where they meet Joseph. We really hope that you are sharpened and edified by this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing Genesis chapter 42. To review, we've got the chiasm of the passage, which reveals to us that the center of what is happening in this story is the brothers come under judgment and they're thrown into prison, which is equivalent to being put to death, coming under a sentence of death. And then after three days, they're given a new opportunity. And if they will start to fear God and stop looking to Pharaoh for help, then they can live. So that is the center of things. And, of course, we'll be looking at it more when we get there in detail. Then last time we talked about how this is what Joseph had to do. Joseph had looked to Pharaoh for deliverance from prison, and he didn't get it. Then finally, when he was delivered, he didn't appeal to Pharaoh any longer, but to Elohim. And then we came to the passage itself, and I'll read again the first section. We'll just review in chapter 42, verse 1. Reading from the Fox translation, just for the sound of it. And when Yaakov saw that there were rations in Egypt, Yaakov said to his sons, Why are you arguing with one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there are rations in Egypt. Go down there and buy us rations from there, that we may live and not die. I pointed out to you last time that we always have to bear in mind the distinction between names Jacob and Israel. Jacob is used to refer to the individual man, and particularly in contrast from the community that he's a part of. Israel is used when Jacob is the head of a body. It's somewhat like the distinction between the words Jesus and Christ in the New Testament. Jesus always refers to the individual. Jesus died on the cross. I don't know that the Bible ever says Christ died on the cross. If it did it would mean something a little bit different. What Jesus does by himself apart from us is what Jesus does. The word Christ carries with it the connotations of the body of Christ, Jesus and all of us together with him, him the head and us the body. The word Israel means Jacob and all his sons with him. That's implied. Sometimes it means the community, of course, the nation of Israel. And sometimes it means the individual, but the individual as the head of that body. Well, when we started in chapter 37, Israel was ruling his sons, and Israel sent Joseph to see his sons. There's still a community there, and Jacob is not estranged from it. But at the end of that chapter, when they bring the evidence that Joseph has been killed, so to speak, it's the name Jacob. Jacob refused to be comforted by his sons and daughters. He's estranged from them now. He's isolated. He's an individual. That community is broken up. Now, the name Jacob is used here, and it it becomes important. This man is not called Israel again until these sons repent, and they are once again united to him. So we commented on that, and there's something we want to continually look at in the passage. Jacob 
as an individual. Not only that, but the sons are arguing with one another. Your Bible may say they're staring at one another or looking at one another, but I pointed out to you last time that this verb, to look, always means two dogs squaring off and growling at each other. Two men standing there ready to draw. That's what we're talking about here. Argument, conflict. They're under pressure, and there's chaos in the community. And that, of course, is part of the larger theme that we have moved to in Genesis. We're no longer dealing with individual patriarchs, but we're moving into this nation situation. And in a nation situation, you have to deal with community problems. You have to deal with rivalry and mimesis and all the things that we have talked about from time to time and will again. This has to be dealt with. And the two things that deal with that are having a king-like figure in charge, and not just a father, but someone larger than that, because the community is too large for merely a father to run it. And the other thing is written, objective, uniform law system that applies to everyone equally and is not arbitrary. And those are the things that God is going to put into place now, starting with Joseph, and then eventually with Moses and Yahweh as king and the giving of the law. That's the only thing that can stop the chaos that ensues when brothers dwell together, when the community gets big. So these passages are showing us the problems. The murder at Shechem, selling Joseph into slavery. Now this, the brothers at strife with each other, that's going to have to be reconciled. Pointed out to you that Jacob says, go and buy this stuff from Egypt. He doesn't want to get it free. He doesn't want to be beholden to the Egyptians. He wants to maintain his independence. And you do that by paying for it. If you get it free, then you are beholden to the person who gives it to you. Jacob doesn't want to be beholden to these pagan Egyptians, and so he wants to buy, and that's why the passage starts off with saying, go down there and buy this stuff, and then it ends with him getting it back free. That's not a happy situation as far as Jacob is concerned. And that's why he says, go back and pay him double next time. And then this phrase, he says, go down and buy rations that we may live and not die. Life and death are all over this story. Well, that's basically what Joseph says to the brothers when he throws them in prison. After the third day, he says, do this so that you can live and not die. But the end of the passage, when they get back, Jacob says, my death is even worse than it was before, and soon I'm going to die and all this. So the idea of searching for life is what's here, looking for life, looking for a salvation. Jacob just says something practical, go down there and buy grain. But in the brother's mind, because they don't trust in the Lord, they don't fear God, essentially in their mind they are looking to Egypt for help. They're looking to Pharaoh for help, and Joseph has to get them to stop looking. That will only lead to more death when they do that. If they're going to find life, they have to look to Elohim and not to Pharaoh. So these are themes that are set up here in the first two verses and that follow through. And now we have caught up with ourselves. Let's read verses 3 to 5. This is the journey to Egypt. And Yosef's brothers went down, ten of them, to buy some ration of grain from Egypt. But Benjamin, Yosef's brother, Yaakov, would not send with his brothers, for he said, lest harm befall him. The sons of Israel came to buy rations among those that came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. I see, we notice that the word Israel is used here, sons of Israel, instead of sons of Jacob. So we want to know why. Why this shift of language? 
Well, there's a little itty bitty chiasm here. It says they go down to buy rations. Then we're told that Jacob keeps Benjamin back. And then it says they come to Egypt to buy rations. The phrases indicate this, this movement. And then highlighted at the center is the fact that Benjamin didn't go. That's going to be a key element in the story. As, of course, we already know because we've heard this story before. Verse 3 calls these guys Joseph's brothers. Doesn't say Jacob's sons went down, he said Joseph's brothers. Well, we already know they're Joseph's brothers. Why change the terminology here? Well, I think it's because Joseph went down to Egypt, now Joseph's brothers go down to Egypt. There are going to be a lot of parallels. And Joseph is going to make his brothers go through what he went through in a lot of different ways. So... Joseph went down to Egypt, and then certain things happened to him. Now, the brothers go down to Egypt. Certain similar, almost identical things are going to happen to them, being thrown into prison, etc., etc. So, being lied about, being falsely charged, being thrown into prison, and the like. So, the language is, I think, there to set up parallels for us. And then we're told that Benjamin is kept back. And that tells us something. Jacob will not send Benjamin lest harm befall him. Well, now, why would he think that? Here are all these older brothers. Yeah, Benjamin is 10 or 15. He's about 15. Well, that means the other brothers are Reuben. He's in his 30s by now. Joseph is 39 by this time. So Reuben is 45 by this time. Reuben has sons of his own. In fact... When Reuben offers to put his sons to death, if Reuben's 45, his sons are probably teenagers. So that's the scenario here. These are grown men, and they'll have servants with them. I don't think we're supposed to think that just ten human beings went down to Egypt. They went down there with some of their servants and donkeys and whatnot to bring stuff back. Because we know that they had all these servants and men who worked with them. It's difficult to believe that only the ten sons of the family would go down with no retinue of assistants and servants and helpers and donkey drivers and the like. Especially since they've got to get enough grain to feed a few thousand people, probably. However many people is in this sheikdom, each of these men has grown and has his own thing now. Judah's married. He's got sons. He's got his own servants. Reuben's got sons. He's got his own servants. There's lots of people that they got to get grain for. So I think we need to see a little caravan going down here in these ten. So why would Benjamin be in danger, and why would Jacob think so? Well, of course, Jacob is just superstitious. He's afraid. I don't think so. I think Jacob clearly suspects that Joseph did not just accidentally come to harm. He knows that they didn't like Joseph. He knows that they came back and said, Oh, look. We found this torn up bloody garment here. What really happened? Expect it, please. Could this be Joseph's garment? Well, what do you mean, guys? You know it's Joseph's garment. There's only one of these. So what are you coming in here and saying, Inspect it, please. Is this Joseph's garment? Jacob can figure out that something is not right. At the very least, they were negligent. At the very least, when they should have been watching out for Joseph, they weren't. He can suspect that much. I doubt if he suspected that they actually did him in. But they certainly weren't being careful because they didn't like him. And they weren't terribly upset to find him dead. And Jacob's not stupid. He knows this. Well, here's Benjamin. He's about 15 years old. And Joseph was 17 when they did him in. 
I just don't think Jacob trusts his sons very much. He trusts them somewhat, but he doesn't have a lot of confidence in them. And he's thinking, if I send Benjamin off with these guys, who knows? They've shown themselves negligent. Here my son Judah has gone off and married this pagan Canaanite woman. He's hanging around Hira the Adulamite and all his Canaanite pagan friends. And look at what Simeon and Levi did. He doesn't trust these guys very much. And so he keeps Benjamin back. Then we come to the phrase in verse 5. It says, the sons of Israel came. And I think that that phrase shows up here to show that they do represent this clan. Israel is the clan or the nation, as well as I said, the individual. It's not just as sons of Jacob that they come, but it is as representatives of the sheikdom of Israel that they come. Even though, spiritually speaking, that sheikdom is torn up. The father is against the sons, and the sons are against each other. It's still officially there. And so we're reminded of that. Their coming to Egypt means the entire clan, by representation, is coming there, and Israel himself is present among them by proxy. And then, just in case we don't catch it, the sons of Israel came to buy rations. Among those that came for the famine was in the land of Canaan. They weren't the only ones who came. There's other Canaanites going down there. Wherever that famine was, there are more than one caravan of people coming down with balsam and dates and silver in order to try to buy grain in Egypt. And now, that sets us up for what happens next. Each of these caravans has got to go to Joseph because Joseph is in charge. We've seen Joseph is in charge of all the grain in Egypt. We also see that all the world came to Joseph to buy rations. Verse 57 of the previous chapter. All the lands came to Egypt to buy rations to Joseph, for the famine was strong in all the lands. So Joseph is in charge of who gets the grain among the foreign nations. Remember, Joseph is the new baker. He's the Secretary of Agriculture, and he's the new cupbearer. He's the Secretary of International Affairs. It's probably what a cupbearer mainly does. And Joseph, who advises Pharaoh with his cup, is in charge of these foreign relations as well. So each of these caravans is going to have to come to Joseph. He'll be the one they talk to. He'll be the one they negotiate with. And we might think, well, he has some assistance to help him, but... Probably he wanted to meet each representative group as they came, even if he left some of the detailed negotiations to his Egyptian assistants. So now we come to the meeting of the brothers with Joseph. We'll read verses 6 to 16, which is the first half of the story, up to the time they're thrown into prison for three days. Now Yosef was governor over the land. It was he who supplied rations to all the people of the land. See, to the Egyptians, but now also to the foreigners. And Yosef's brothers came and bowed low to him, face to the ground, brow to the ground. When Yosef saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he pretended not to recognize them and spoke harshly to them. And he said to them, From whence do you come? And they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food rations. And although Yosef recognized his brothers, for their part, they did not recognize him. And Yosef was reminded of the dreams that he had dreamt of them. And he said to them, You are spies. It is to see the nakedness of the land that you have come. 
And they said to him, No, my lord, rather your servants have come to buy food rations. We are all of us the sons of a single man. We are honest. Your servants have never been spies. But he said to them, No, for it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, Your servants are twelve, and we are brothers, sons of a single man in the land of Canaan. Then the youngest is with our father now, and one is no more. And Yosef said to them, It is just as I spoke to you, saying, You are spies. Hereby shall you be tested, as Pharaoh lives. You shall not depart from here, unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you to fetch your brother, while you remain as prisoners. Thus will your words be tested, whether there is truth in you or not. As Pharaoh lives, indeed, you are spies. Now, I've always read this story and thought, well, Joseph is just trying to put them off guard by calling them spies. But, of course, nothing like that is, that's never quite enough. They are spies. And we'll have to see why they're spies in a moment. But they are spies, and Joseph charges them with exactly what they're guilty of. They are people who spy out the weakness of others and take advantage of it. Do you remember when they did that? Shall we just jump to the chase here? They saw Joseph coming from afar and recognized him and set a trap for him. That's when they were spies. They spied out the nakedness of Joseph. They stripped the garment off of him and made him naked. So all of this talk about them being spies and coming to spy out the weakness and nakedness, it all goes back to what they actually did 20 years earlier. 21 years earlier. Let's go back and look at it in a bit of detail. Verse 6. Joseph was governor over the land. It was he who supplied rations to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed low to him with their faces to the ground. Well, we already know Joseph's position that he dispenses rations. It's repeated here to tell us that he also dispenses rations to foreigners. And I think that's right. Even though it says all the people of the land, it's brought up here again to say he is the one who does it. Just to make sure we understand. And so, just as all the other caravans have got to come to Joseph and beg for an audience, so the brothers do. And when they bow down to him, this fulfills his dream. Where the sheaves and the stars bow down to him. And he will remember that. Well, verse 7 says that when Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he pretended not to recognize them and spoke harshly to them. And he said, where do you come from? And they said, from Canaan to buy food rations. Now, again, we've got another tag here that you might miss. But the word recognize is the same verb used in chapter 37 and 38 when the torn garment of Joseph was brought to Jacob and when Judah's seal was presented to Judah from Tamar. Remember, the brothers came to their father with the torn garment, and they said, Pray recognize whether this is your son's coat or not. And he recognized it. And then remember we said almost identically the same language is used when Tamar sends the seal, the stuff that she's gotten from Judah in the next chapter. Pray recognize whose seal and cords and staff are these. Seal and cords and pen are these. And Judah recognized them. Almost identical language to show similarity. Evidence is presented to shock 
Well, now we have the same word. And it's not used all that much. I mean, it's not something that shows up paragraph after paragraph in these chapters. It shows up here these three times, and that's it. So the writer intends for us to make connections here. Aha! We have the recognition experience, but he pretends not to. And he speaks harshly to them to keep them off guard. It's not likely they would recognize him anyway. They have no idea who he is. It's been 20 years. He certainly doesn't look the same. And he's neither dressed nor made up to look the same. He's probably got coal around his eyes. And he certainly has Egyptian garments on. He doesn't look like somebody from the land of Canaan at all. No beard. He's not somebody they would recognize. Although if he's clean shaven, he probably looks a little bit more like he did when he was 17 than he would if he had a big beard. So, verse 8. Though Joseph recognized his brothers for their part, they did not recognize him. I've got down here. Though the verb is not used again in Genesis, it is when they do recognize him that they are reconciled with him. And that's where the parallel comes in, you see. Jacob comes to understand what's happened to Joseph when he recognizes the torn tunic. Judah is reconciled to Tamar when he recognizes the seal and the pen and the cord that is presented to him. When the brothers recognize Joseph, that will be when the reconciliation takes place. So it's business of deception and then reconciliation. We've seen it in Genesis before, and of course it's going to be here again. The only other use of this term in Genesis is back when Isaac didn't recognize Jacob. Jacob came before him dressed up and smelling like Esau. In chapter 27, 23, Isaac did not recognize that it was Jacob and thought it was Esau. And so we are back to this theme of the shock of recognition where a wise person craftily manipulates somebody to bring them to repentance by doing something that causes them to recognize what is happening. And Rebecca's manipulation of Isaac was to that purpose. We studied that in detail, that Rebecca is bringing Isaac to a point where suddenly he recognizes what has actually happened, and then he repents. Tamar's manipulation of Judah is the same way. She sets things up in such a way that Then when Judah sees what has actually happened and recognizes it, he is brought to repentance. He changes his mind. Joseph's manipulation of the brothers is for the exact same purpose, to bring them to recognition. And Jesus' manipulation of the two people on the road to Emmaus has the same form. Obviously, I mean, here's his husband and wife, or whoever they were, on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus doesn't tell them who he is. They're talking the whole time. He conceals who he is from them. It's a deception. You would think that's not really entirely kosher for him to lead them on hour after hour and not show who he is or say who he is, but he takes it right up to the point where he breaks the bread at the meal, and then suddenly they recognize, and that's for theological reasons, we recognize Jesus in the Lord's Supper now, but that as that shock of recognition is a way of bringing repentance out of a situation in which people's minds are blocked. You have the same kind of thing when parables are told. David is brought to that point. David 
has an affair with Bathsheba, and then she gets pregnant, and he kills Uriah, and then he averts his mind from it month after month. He won't think about it. He won't deal with it. He just won't think about it at all. He's averted his attention from what he's done, because he knows it's wrong, so he suppresses it. Well, then Nathan comes and tells him a parable. And the parable gets him to think about something else. And then there is a shock of recognition when Nathan says, but you've done exactly the same thing. You're the man. And then David is shocked into realizing what he's done and repents. Now, this happens a lot in the Bible. And this is being set up here by this word recognize. It's used in Genesis only for these kinds of situations where somebody is shocked into life or death. Jacob was shocked into death when the brothers brought Joseph's torn garment to him. The other situations, a person was shocked out of death and into life with Isaac, Judah, and what is going to happen here with Joseph. Now verse 9 says, When Joseph recognized his brothers and they didn't recognize him, Joseph was reminded of the dreams that he had dreamt of them. And he said to them, Your spies is to see the nakedness of the land that you have come. Now, Okay, Joseph was reminded of the dreams. Great. Why are we told this, and why is it important? I think it's important because it tells Joseph something, and it tells us something. Joseph now knows that his dreams are being fulfilled. Now, we had read in the previous chapter that he named his first son Manasseh, meaning God has enabled me to forget all the stuff in my past. So, essentially, somewhere in his long-term memory, there's those two dreams that he had when he was 17. But he hasn't thought about them in a long time. And he hasn't wanted to think about them. Now he's reminded of them. And not only so, but Joseph can remember now, yes, I had those dreams, and they were prophetic dreams, but I didn't think they were ever going to come to pass. But now he sees, wait a minute, they are coming to pass. God is doing something. God has foretold it. And God has a purpose in it. Now, what's the purpose? It wasn't the purpose Joseph probably thought of when he first dreamed them. If I have a dream and a bunch of people bow down to me, I just figure, well, I've become important and they're bowing down to me. But now something else has happened. These brothers have committed this horrible sin. And now they come and bow down to him. And now Joseph's in charge. What does that mean? What's God's intention? Joseph can begin to think, Not only did the, I mean, he could say, well, I just triumph over these fellows and get revenge on them, or that God has a purpose which is redemptive. And it's obvious that Joseph immediately begins to think in terms of what to do to redeem the situation. He is a messianic, redemptive character. And so I think that the statement, the author's statement that Joseph was reminded of the dreams, which we could guess without being told, is to tell us that this sets Joseph's mind to a certain tack. That God has brought this to pass. This isn't God brings everything to pass, but this is something God especially brought to pass for some special reason. And the special reason has something to do with being reconciled to these brothers. It has something to do with saving the brothers from their state of sinfulness. And so I think that Joseph now begins to hit on his plan, and he seems to hit on it almost instantly. We know he hasn't been thinking about this. He never actually thought he'd see these guys again, and he had forgotten 
He says, God has caused me to forget. I no longer have to dwell on what's happened to me in the past. I have a new life. That's nice when you can get past all the stuff that's happened to you before that hangs over you. Well, now it's come back, but it's come back for a purpose. And I think Joseph, being a wise man who's had a lot of experience, the plan comes to him right away. And, of course, the plan is to manipulate these brothers into understanding what they've done so that they can repent of it. So he accuses them of being spies. And, of course, usually we can say this much for certain, and this is true. Oh, this is to frighten them. Obviously, they're going to be scared. They come down there open to buy money. They're already in a weak position, and then they're accused of being spies. Why are we being accused of being spies? All the other caravans weren't accused of being spies. These Midianites over here, and Medanites, and Shuahites, and these others who are down here trying to buy food, they're not accused of being spies. But all of a sudden, this guy who has all the power, and before whom they are powerless, he accuses them of being spies. But this is not just to scare them. I've got down here for you that the word spies... In fact, in precisely the same form, the PL participle, meaning ones who spy, is used seven times in this passage. In other words, if I read this in Hebrew, you'd hear exactly the same sound seven times in just a few verses. Not only the same verb, but the same form of the verb, exactly the same vowels, exactly the same form. And so, when you've got that, when you've got within a paragraph one word showing up seven times and even that much... It's a theme, and we've already mentioned what the theme is. They really are spies, and they just don't realize it. And they are protesting that it's not true. They said to him, verse 10, No, my Lord, rather your servants have come to buy food rations. We're all of us sons of a single man. We are honest. <laughs> I believe it. Your servants have never been spies. Well, now, they're telling the wrong person that they're honest. And they're telling the wrong person that they've never been spies. Although spy is not used, the same thing is meant when it says they saw Joseph as he came to them in chapter 37. In fact, even this word to see is used among these instances of the word spy in verse 12. Because he says to them, no, it's the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And then they saw Joseph coming from afar. And they took advantage of his weakness, which is what nakedness means. To spy out the nakedness of the land is to spy out its weakness. And you remember that, as I mentioned with the case of Joseph, they actually made him naked, stripping his garment off of him. And then they lied to their father, which is not honest behavior. Now, Joseph doesn't know exactly what they went home and told their father. But he knows they didn't tell him the truth, or they wouldn't still be around. They wouldn't be sons of Israel. Something more would have happened. And, of course, he knows that they've dealt dishonestly in the past anyway. That's why they disliked Joseph to start with. Because Joseph brought bad reports of their dishonesty back to Jacob at the beginning of this narrative. So he knows they're not honest men, or they certainly didn't used to be. And they have been spies. But, of course, they don't understand that he has this double meaning. We do. We must understand it to see the story the right way. But they don't understand it. They just think that he's accusing them of wanting to conquer the land of Egypt. Which on the face of it is preposterous, and they know it, but they can't figure out why he keeps pushing this business on them. You're spies, you're spies, you're spies. It's to get them to think, and they will 
have lots of time to think. So, verse 13, they said, Your servants are twelve. We're brothers, sons of a single man in the land of Canaan. The youngest is with our father now, and one is no more. Now, this is a revelation to Joseph. I've told you before, and I'll tell you again, this is the first time Joseph ever heard that he had a younger brother. Joseph had been in Egypt for quite some time before Benjamin was born. He doesn't know that his mother's dead, and he doesn't know that there was anybody named Benjamin who was ever born. Joseph has been in Egypt for 21 years. Benjamin is only about 15 years old. So we're looking at five or six years. Remember, Benjamin was born after the incident with Dinah. And when Joseph was sold into slavery, Dinah was about ten years old. Well, Dinah was not ravished by Amor when she was ten and then married to him. No, Joseph has been in Egypt about five or six years when you have Amor taking advantage of Dinah and then that whole incident in chapter 34. And it's only after that that Benjamin is born. So Benjamin is at the most about 15 years old. He may be younger than that. And... Joseph has never heard of him. So this is a revelation. And we're not told the impact of this on him. (laughs) See, we are told Joseph was reminded of the dreams when he saw the brothers. It doesn't say Joseph was amazed to hear he had a younger brother. But we know that if we read carefully, this is something new. Well, Joseph now hits on an even greater plan. So there's a younger brother, huh? Well, let's make him a cat's paw. What he's going to do is put Benjamin in the position that Joseph was in and see if the brothers treat Benjamin the way they treated Joseph. He's going to give all kinds of honors and special privileges to Benjamin, just like Joseph had been given honors and special privileges, and see if the brothers treat Benjamin the same way or if they have changed their ways. That's the plan. I think the plan came to him immediately because he starts in right away. Joseph said to them, It is just as I spoke to you. You are spies. You are ones who spy. You are people characterized by spying. See, I want you to understand, this is not a noun. It's a participle. If you know a grammar, even if you don't, let me explain it to you. If you said you were spies, that would mean right now you're coming down here to spy out the land. But actually, the word has a bigger meaning than that. Using a participle, you are people characterized by spying. You are by nature spies. You are Those who spy. That's your nature. In other words, by using this word, he's not just saying, you come down here on this one occasion to spy out Egypt. He's saying, you are by nature spies. You are by nature people who take advantage of the weak. You are by nature people who look for weakness and seek to exploit it. And you're by nature murderers. You're by nature that kind of thing. So that is what is implied by the use of a participle instead of a noun, at least. Now, of course, he's speaking through an interpreter. We find out pretty quick that Joseph is talking in Egyptian here, and there is a translator between them. So exactly how much of this they would have gotten, I don't know. But we can begin to feel something of it when it's repeated seven times. Verse 14, Joseph said to them, It's just as I spoke to you, saying, You are spies by nature. And this is how you're going to be tested. As Pharaoh lives. Now, it's going to happen twice. As Pharaoh lives. Then they'll be thrown into jail, and then they'll come out, and he'll say, I fear God. Now, Pharaoh is the one who disposes life and death before they go into prison 
And Elohim is the one who is disposing life and death after they come out of prison. So this is this movement here that he puts them through. Pharaoh, oh, as the chief of all Egyptian gods, Pharaoh himself, the incarnation of Ray, as he lives, you will die, basically. You'll be in prison. Hereby shall you be tested as Pharaoh lives. You shall not depart from this place unless your younger brother comes here. So he's got this plan instantly. He's not just curious to see Benjamin. He has intentions. Send one of you to fetch your brother while the rest remain as prisoners. And thus will your words be tested whether there's truth in you or not. As Pharaoh lives indeed, you are by nature spy guys. Now... I've got down here beginning to realize God's intentions. Joseph immediately hits on his plan. I think that's exactly right. That's why we're told that he remembered the dreams, because now he sees that God had intentions, and this is not some accident or general providence. This is very specific. And he needs to get his younger brother down here to Egypt and use him as a test. And he'll test them to begin with. His purpose is to test them, and to begin with, the test involves their bringing a younger brother down to Egypt. Will they do it or not? And how can he get them to do it? So I've commented a number of times, as Pharaoh lives under the old order of things when Pharaoh, not Elohim, ruled. And that's the way it was. That's the way it was when Joseph was in prison. He appealed to Pharaoh. Pharaoh was in charge. Nothing happened. Then Pharaoh got pulled down, and Elohim was in charge. And Joseph appealed to Elohim. Joseph has gotten out of prison. Now, the brothers have to learn the same thing. They came down there to Egypt to ask for grain, but who are they asking the grain from? It's not wrong to get it from Egypt if you understand that it's ultimately coming from God. But if you put God out of your thinking and you're just looking to Egypt for help, that's bad. That's idolatry. And I think there's a little bit more here. I think under the old order, under the law, they must die. They must remain in Egypt in prison. Not until after three days, then there is a new covenant, so to speak, a new situation. They're given a new opportunity. And the precise conditions are given here in verse 16. The precise conditions under Pharaoh, under the old order, are set out. One will live while the rest will die. And that's about to be turned upside down. But right now, they're all going to die. Only one will escape. They're not really going to die, of course. They're in prison. But you understand that this has all been set up. To be thrown into a pit, and it's going to be called a pit, that's death. Only one of them is going to live, and the rest are going to die. As Pharaoh lives, you are spies. That is what they are in sin under the old order of fair salvation. They spy, attack, and lie. That's the kind of people they are. Those who spy and take advantage of the weakness of others. So now, he puts them into prison for three days, just as he was in prison for several years, and in particular three years after he appealed for help. And of course, three of anything is always your time that leads to a change. So on the third day, things are going to change. He removed them into custody for three days. Actually, it is the roundhouse, the same place Joseph was. And Joseph said to them on the third day, and then he tells them about the new situation. If they fear God, they can live. He put them into custody. It says here, same word for custody is used for Joseph in the roundhouse of Potiphar. He puts them through what they went through. 
as Joseph learned not to appeal to Pharaoh, but to Elohim, so must they. And then the third day, which is always a time for a change, for a new opportunity. And very quickly we can glance at this new situation. And then, no, I don't think so. This is as good a place as any to stop and come back to it next week. We are right at the point where they'll be given a new opportunity, and the new opportunity will make them even more frightened than they were before. It's scary enough to be sentenced to death, but it's even scarier to have to face your own sins, which is what they will have to do when they move into the new situation. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.